Women have been playing football for more than 150 years, and it's always been political. Some have been celebrated, but others have been ridiculed, criticized, and forgotten. This is the Forgotten 11, the hidden history of women's football. I'm not going to the White House. No. You know, there was a lot of critics talking about us, but we're back, so suck in that one. <laughs> Give me the effing ball. Playing like a girl means you're a badass. Welcome to the Forgotten 11. I'm Chris McGlynn. I did most of today's show just after the She Believes Cup and just before uh, the virus really hit North America. It's long, but since so many of us are going to have a little bit more time on our hands, I figure it's okay. You can follow the show on Twitter at ForgottenXI and share with your friends. Be safe. Wash your hands. Does this sound familiar? In the 1970 and 71 Fife Women's World Cups, Denmark won both finals. The team was actually a club team called BK Femina. BK stands for Bold Clubben in Danish, and it means ball club or football club. BK Femina was founded in 1959. Femina was a Danish women's magazine founded in 1874. In 1903, Femina caused a scandal by publishing the word brazier, or bra, in the women's magazine. Yeah, I guess they were operating under the assumption that in a women's fashion magazine, women might want to read about their own clothing. In 1952, they expanded to cover all women's issues. From all accounts, they were fairly progressive. In the summer of 1959, they sent a reporter named Alf Morkeberg to a, count, a town called Slagelsa, not far from Copenhagen, to cover a women's exhibition match between student nurses. A man named Alan Anderson had seen a group of these nurses playing football several times and asked them to play an exhibition during halftime at a men's match. Anderson later said, I originally suggested to the girls the idea of playing a football match. They were immediately enthusiastic. Since that day, I haven't been able to persuade them to pick up a handball. Morkenberg was impressed with the women's skill. He decided to talk to the magazine and some players about creating a permanent team. In October of 1959, BK Femina was born. The magazine would supply their kit, pay their travel expenses. Alf Morkenberg would write a weekly column in the magazine about the team and their matches. In the spring of 1960, Femina Magazine held a women's tournament with 29 teams. With the help of professional trainers hired by the magazine, BK Femina won not only the tournament, but all but one of the 30 matches they played in 1960. In 1962, the magazine would withdraw its financial support. But the team found new sponsors. And if you don't know the history of football, this might not sound like a big deal. At the time, though, it was a very big deal. From the founding of the English FA in 1863, football was strictly amateur, meaning no one got paid to play it. This was because the original men who played and created the English FA were upper and middle class men who thought manual labor was beneath them. They also thought that if money were involved, then there would be cheating and match fixing. The clubs could make money, but there were strict rules on how they could spend it. There were obviously some scandals. Some of the first ones involved giving players jobs at local companies where they didn't really have to work, or sometimes even show up. There was also something called boot money. Boot money was money the players would find in their boots after a match. So by the 1880s, tons of players were getting paid under the table. Matches were sometimes overturned when it was found out that professional players were there in the teams. In 1884, things came to a head after a professional Preston North End won an FA Cup match against the proudly amateur Upton Park FC. Upton Park 
wanted the match overturned. Preston North End obviously didn't. Preston North End and 30 other professional teams in the FA decided that if the FA wasn't going to allow professional players, they would create a British Football Association to rival the English FA, and it would allow players to be paid. The FA had to relent, knowing they would lose all their players to a, f a fully professional association. But they set a strict salary cap for the players that was solidly middle class, so no one was getting rich from playing footy. Some countries enforced this strict amateurism until the 1990s. And the salary cap was in place into the 1960s in England. Denmark didn't allow professional players until 1978. So BK Femina finding financial backers in the 1950s and 60s was actually a big deal at the time. Even if the players weren't getting rich off their matches, they could at least play for free and maybe make a little extra money. The thing to understand here is that because FIFA wanted nothing to do with women's football, the teams and players could do what they liked. With FIFA ignoring the women, they could invest their money where they liked. They didn't need to worry about FIFA's salary cap or club financial rules. Teams like BK Femina could pay their players' expenses, even go on international tours. In 1968, BK Femina traveled to Czechoslovakia to play matches there. They even picked up two Czech players for their squad. There weren't many women's teams in Denmark at the time. But there were enough that the teams themselves formed the Danish Women's Football Union to oversee the matches. BK Femina played against both women's teams and young men's teams, sometimes raising money for other clubs or at exhibition matches. They beat nearly everyone they faced short of top men's clubs. They were masters of their own fate and masters of their own wallets. In 1969, BK Femina was invited to Fife's European Cup of Nations. In the final, they nearly lost to Italy. But their second place finish ensured that they would be invited back for Fife's 1970 Women's World Cup. After they won the 1970 Women's World Cup, they got a lot of attention both at home and abroad. They became the first Danish women's team to be paid directly by sponsors, the world champions were in advertisements. People in Denmark began to wonder why women weren't recognized on the pitch. People actually seemed to care. The Danish Football Union had to issue a statement about why they didn't recognize the women's game. In the spring of 1971, 200 teams registered with the non-FIFA sanctioned Danish Women's Football Union. And for Fife's second World Cup in Mexico, in 1971, the Danish Women's Football Union could pick a team that was truly a reflection of the whole country, although the core of the team was still BK Femina. If you remember, Denmark beat Mexico 3-0 in the final with Suzanne Augustusson's hat-trick. Danish newspapers hadn't sent any reporters to Mexico, and so had to rely on newswires and interviews with the players when they returned home. The team had a plan. Now that they had won the World Cup twice, they would tell the media that their priority was to get women's football admitted into the Danish Football Union. And this would be their undoing. The Danish Football Union declared in 1971, quote, no direct association with the union can be contemplated for as long as women's football has the financial backing of magazine publishers. Remember that Femina hadn't sponsored the team in nearly 10 years, but they had accepted other sponsors, which offended the union's amateurism. But in June of 1971, the European Union Football Association, or UEFA, asked the men's associations of Europe to admit women into the organizations. This was a bit of an end run around FIFA, but it worked in many countries. In February of 1972, the Danish Football Union admitted women into their organization. They appointed a ladies' committee 
to oversee women's football. And the first thing that this committee did was to abolish the Danish national women's team. Weirdly, UEFA was not going to organize women's international matches, so the union said that there was no need for the team. One of the players from the team said, the prospect of going to Mexico and the World Cup was a great incentive. Those, those were the kinds of things we lost by entering the Danish football union. The Danish football union did resurrect the women's team later that year, but the administration of it and the women's game in Denmark now went to the mostly male Danish football union, and for them, it wasn't a priority. The 20,000 female players, happy to now have a league, continued to play and train for their clubs and took what they were offered. In 1979, the Danish women won a non-FIFA-sanctioned European championship, and they were again in the news. They complained that there was still no national championship. The women published a magazine called Focus on Women's Football and organized their own women's division association. They were just tired of taking what they were giving and were demanding the Danish Football Union do more. Danish women's football stagnated in the 1980s, and it wasn't until the 1990s that there was much improvement. And that was largely due to the establishment of the FIFA Women's World Cup, which had taken women all over the world decades to secure. Hi, my name's Hannah. Um, I am half of It's Not Soccer, the NWSL podcast um, with Helen. I'll let Helen introduce herself as well. Hey, I'm Helen Hardy, and um, I'm also the other half of It's Not Soccer, the NWSL podcast. Uh, Hannah and I only set up a couple of months ago. Um, we're both British girls, as you can probably hear from our accents, uh, but we both follow the NWSL. Hannah, slightly more so. Would you say that's fair, Hannah? Yeah, yeah. That was that was playing it very cool. Um, I adore the NWSL, absolutely. Hannah's a, uh, she's, she'll deny it, but she's a bit of a fountain of knowledge about the NWSL. She knows her stuff, whereas I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm sort of a mixture between, I follow it, I kind of know quite a lot of the players and who they are, but in terms of the history and, and the sort of framework of the league, I don't know as much as Hannah does. But I think that's the basis of our podcast, is that I'm learning through the podcast, along with a lot of British listeners who don't know anything about the NWSL. So it's a bit of a journey. Um, and, and I hope that's that, that's how it's perceived by the listeners anyway. Okay. Well, part of the reason I wanted you guys uh, on the show um, was the recent filing uh, by U.S. Soccer against uh, the U.S. women's national team. Uh, for anybody that's not aware, U.S. Uh, women's team are suing the federation for equal pay now what what do you guys know about uh the u.s lawsuit so i've i've kind of followed it for um since it's been in the press um i'm a big fan of the the u.s women's national team and it will destroy some other brits to know that i have a tendency to follow the u.s national team slightly more than the um the lionesses for all my sins um so i have yeah i've, I've stayed really close to the news um I think there's some really, really interesting stuff coming out of the lawsuit. Every time we see more documents released as well, it's it's kind of fascinating um, to see maybe the way U.S. soccer is handling it. I think particularly recently with Carlos Padero, I'm sure we'll go into it. It's, um, it's mad to think that these kind of prejudices, I guess, is, is a way you could describe it, exists still in the sport. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but I I just think it's amazing credit to the US national team. I think the stuff they're they're doing both on and off the field is is really pioneering, um, and that's one of the reasons I just massively respect them so much as well. Yeah. From my side, um, slightly less detail than Hannah. I've read quite a few of the transcripts that have been coming through, and um, from some of the US players. Similarly to Hannah, I just think the resilience of this women's team and going back historically to the sort of previous teams, the Nick Hope Solos bring to mind and, and um, some of those legends, it, it, the resilience that they have, that they have um, 
I'm up against to continue this fight, I just think is so incredibly brave. One of the things that stands out to me is I think this is the only case in world soccer um, where the women are in a position where they actually are more economically viable than the male counterparts. And yet there is so much pushing against this group of women. It, 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 it's baffling to me. And um, they're so they're much more successful, um, both in the number of trophies that they have and also in the, in the number of supporters they have and, and followers they have around the world. Uh, it, for me, it's still also one of my favorite facts about the Nike shirt sales in 2019. The most online shirts sold worldwide were the USA women's soccer shirts. I mean, they have such a huge world presence. And yet, um, a team that's that's sort of in relative obscurity is earning more money than them. It just just blatant uh, sexism of, of the highest order. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the uh, U.S. soccer uh, last week uh, filed in the ongoing court battle uh, with the U.S. women's team. They filed a document that said, and I'm summarizing, it said that the, basically the U.S. men's team is not very good, so the fans are mean to them. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of support for uh, the Mexico team here in the U.S. <laughs> but so those Americans who support the Mexican team are mean to the men. So the men, because they're not as good and because the fans are mean to them, they deserve more money. So that's right. That's one of the things that the, the U.S. soccer came out and said. Uh, they also said, quote, based on indisputable science, uh, the men's game requires a higher level of skill. Which, I, when I saw that, my jaw hit the floor. Like, in 2020, you think that there's science that backs that up? For me, um, I think this is. I think there's so many different historic cases that you can rely on to to sort of present this sort of scenario that happens all the time. And what it is is when the women weren't as economically viable, they relied on that information. And now that women are more economically viable, they they'll um, they rely on something else. There will always be something that means that women are not as worthy as men in certain arenas. Um, one of them being soccer. It's predominantly seen as a man's sport. And as soon as women in, um, in England became as successful as men in 1921, they banned us. They banned us from mm -hmm. kicking footballs because that meant that that in some way we were outdoing them. And there seems to be this sort of rhetoric of if women do as well at something or become as successful at something, then it's taking something away from men. But actually it's not. And it's perfectly capable for them to coexist as two national teams earning the same amount of money without taking something away from the men. I'd, I must admit, I'd not heard that about uh, the men's team and, um, and them feeling bullied or harassed, but it's quite laughable, even even from my small bits of experience of being a woman um, in any arena to feel bullied and harassed. Hilarious. Hannah, did you know that? I'd cut, yeah, I'd, I'd seen the... Um... I'd seen the filings, um, and it just kind of stumped me. The, the arguments from U.S. soccer were um, interesting. I think it's, I don't know, it's just crackers, absolutely crackers. Um, I saw that Carly Lloyd, in response, came up with, with quite a great quip. She said, um, why don't we fight it out to see actually out of the men's and the women's team which of the two are better, and then whoever wins, mm -hmm. let's pay them more. Um, which I think was great. Like they're so just ready for the fight. They really are. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I mean, time wise as well, this all, so much of this came out on international women's day. Um, the players mm -hmm. were, were right in the midst of the, she believes cup and, and for that, then to just actually go out and, and win the tournament really just shows their, their real resilience. Um, mm -hmm. and their fight. Um, I don't know if everybody will have seen, but obviously in the last game they played, against Japan the, the players kind of protested a little bit against US soccer so they turned the training jerseys inside out um, mm -hmm. so that the embroidery only showed the four stars and didn't show the US soccer crest and it was just a really 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 clever subliminal way of, of kind of saying to US soccer look we're, we're willing to fight you um, right until the bitter end which I love absolutely mm -hmm. love that fight yeah 
I have a question, guys. What is the stance of the US men's team? Like, where do they stand in this? What do they? How do they feel about it? Uh, about a month ago, um, and I could be a little bit wrong on the, the date, but they, uh, US soccer, uh, the team, the men's team, uh, issued a letter basically saying that, yeah, it's time for equal pay. Um, there are differences in how uh, the men's contract and the women's contract work, but they definitely came out in support of, of the women's team. Yeah, yeah. Has anybody been kind of outwardly spoken? You know, the, the name that crops to mind is, is Christian Pulisic, as, as him being such a um, a well-known worldwide name in, in, the, in world soccer. Has he come forward, or has anybody, has any of the top players or historic players, Howard, players like that, come forward? Um, well, like I said, uh, Pusilich is part of the team, the team that signed the letter. Okay. Um, but yeah, in terms of historical figures, like former men's players, I don't know um, that they've made statements at all. Um, right. But one of the things I find funny, um, and I do this every Women's World Cup. Uh, you know, like a lot of times in, I'm in Chicago, so it's a big baseball town. We've got two baseball teams, lots of people, like the older men, whatever, they don't pay any attention to soccer. And I'll ask them, like, when, you know, I'm watching a match and, you know, maybe they want to watch baseball, but we've got the Women's Cup on. It's like, name uh, any U.S. women's player from historically, like any of them. Uh, and even these baseball guys uh, who know nothing about soccer, they can come up with, uh, maybe Mia Hamm, they might know Hope Solo, and even if they can't come up with a name, they remember uh, 1999 when Brandy Chastain won uh, the World Cup against China and ripped off her jersey. So even people that aren't paying attention can name uh, at least two or three women's players. But then I say, okay, name a U.S. men's player, ever. And it, even some of the guys that do follow soccer can't even come up with uh, Christian Pulisic. Wow. So, so not well, even, I, I, not even, you know, the quarterfinal team from, from what was it, 2000 and, 2010, 2014 that got that got to the quarterfinal, was it? Um, that was Tim Howard that year. So they can't even, yeah. they can't even name any of those, those players. Wow. I know. That's that's crazy. It, mm -hmm. It's this weird thing because. Um, because online over here, so so over in England, uh, there is quite a lot of coverage over the, the lawsuit. And the clip that's going around at the moment, I'm not sure, Hannah, if you've seen it, but the clip going around at the moment is of the Megan Rapinoe standing at the end of She Believes and talking directly to camera. And basically, she just um, does a little short uh, couple of sentences about equal pay. And she just says, you know, it's, it time's up. It, like, you've got to start paying attention to this. And unfortunately, I mean, it's keyboard warriors and everything, and it's people that have no absolutely no interest in women's football over here. Uh, they've kind of tarnished every female footballer in the world with that brush. That like players like Lucy Bronze are asking for equal pay, when in fact she's absolutely not and ha never has asked for equal mm -hmm. pay. It's just such a different. The U.S. women's national team and the U.S. men's national team. It's just such a different argument is it's based on such a different set of because they also have their, their their wages tied into it as well and their contracts are tied to american um league clubs and things like that it mm. it's just a t totally different setup to the way that our english players or the german players or the netherlands players are experiencing with their with their national team so it's really interesting over here because the perspective is very much like shut up women go away and to hear you saying that you could be in a bar in Chicago and, and no one around you would know any of the men's players but they'd know a lot of the women's players is, is quite shocking to me I'm not going to lie yeah I mean it's, it's only people that that follow soccer that um, really know any of the men's players and even like I follow soccer and I, I think I come up with five wow mad yeah such a different just like discord and there's such a difference between the two teams, I think, versus every other national team. The women's team is such a more prevalent team in the US. Mad.
Hannah, over here, you tell me, it feels secondary, like the women feel secondary. Like we're now in, obviously in the middle of a, of a bit of a crisis um, with this coronavirus going around and they're talking about um, cancelling the Euros. So the Euro, the men's Euros are happening at the beginning of the summer and everybody's talk is just, let's cancel the Euros and move it to the year after. Mm-hmm. And all the women are going, but the, but the women's is the year after and they're like, oh, we'll just cancel that. And that's like the take on women's football. It's, it's you know, the women's football can be moved aside for men's football because it's not as important. Hannah, do you think that's fair of me to say that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think at times it can feel like a real afterthought as well. Um, we'll often see league fixtures moved around to coincide with the men's games if they're being broadcast on TV. The women's games can, can change dates or times or anything like that at the drop of a hat. Um, mm. And it does really feel like, yeah, they're, they're treated as second best um, in quite a few situations. And I think this mm. comes from the infrastructure of the women's game. So to put some perspective into it, I'm sure you'll be able to tell me better than, than I can tell you about the sort of upbringing of a small little girl that wants to play soccer in America versus a little girl that wants to play football in England. And their experiences and their journey to get to the top are just totally different. Like... If we take Jill Scott, who's a bit of a national treasure in England, her journey to get to national level involved her playing um, for Sunderland, which were one of the top teams in England. And she was paying £30 a week, like $60 a week to play for that club. So she was paying them to play professional football. And goalkeepers just wouldn't have had a coach until about three or four years ago they just will never have been taught how to be a goalkeeper so Mm. all of the sort of basics were never are never taught whereas you tell me and and confirm whether I'm I'm telling the truth here but in America it feels like a little six-year-old girl who's like mum dad I want to be a soccer player and there will be somewhere for her to go to actually have that Mm. foundation and there's the prospect even in the 90s and the noughties there was the prospect that she might be able to go to college and then might be able to come, become a professional footballer and she might be able to play mm. for her country and she might be like blown up 20 foot tall on the side of a building. Like even back then, that was a prospect. In England, I could not have told you the name of an English female player when I was a little girl. I couldn't. Mm. Hannah, am I being there? No, I would agree. I think the, the only thing I really remember growing up was the film Bend It Like Beckham. And the aspiration in Bend It Like Beckham was for players they wanted to, to move to America and play in America because that mm-hmm. was the epitome. That was where the professional leagues were. And that was actually every little girl that played football. That was her dream. Every little girl mm-hmm. that played football in England wanted to be the male footballer. They wanted to be yeah. David Beckham. Yeah. I wanted to be Alan Shearer. <laughs> I mean, it was that's what it was that's what it was like you you weren't looking up to Mia Hamm you weren't looking up to some of these legends of 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 the day you were looking up to men so there was nowhere Mm -hmm. there was was no glass ceiling it was it was definitely a brick wall for Hannah and I in England Mm -hmm. yeah I mean last summer I saw uh, on BBC uh, a reporter's uh, at a girls uh, football practice um and asking, you know, all these little girls, you know, who do you want to be when you grow up? And this is just last summer during the, the Women's World Cup. Uh, and, you know, obviously they're all playing. But almost every single one of them said, uh, oh, I want to be, you know, Wayne Rooney or this male player or that male player. And then the reporter said, well, have you ever heard of Lily Parr? And they're like, who's Lily Parr? Yeah, she's, the, she's, the, she's actually the only female statue of a footballer in the world. Did you know that? <laughs> I think there's one of Brandy Chastain now somewhere. Is there? Oh, that's wrong. amazing. Th- they, yeah, they've built a, um, a statue of Lynn Parr in, in Manchester at the National Football Museum. Um, but she was from Dick Curl Lady, wasn't she? So she played mm-hmm. the best women's teams um, all time, arguably. Yeah, absolutely, arguably. Um, I mean, as, as you know, I pointed out before on the show, uh, they didn't have the league. Um, and you know they played during the band, but I mean Lily Parr had nearly a thousand goals in her career compared to like Messi or Ronaldo, who were supposed to be the best, you know, at least of our generation. Uh, they each have you know a little over seven hundred goals, so 
yeah. She was. I just find good. it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but I just find it amazing that nobody knows who she is. Do you find it amazing, or do you think that it's pretty standard of of kind of? I think it's. I think it's much more a British problem, but um, it's secondary. I mean. It would never be viewed in the same way as Pele or as any other historic legend in men's football and the amount of goals that those players scored. It just wouldn't be viewed in the same light in England. Well, yeah, and I think, uh, I forget which one of you were talking about it earlier, but the self-fulfilling prophecy of women's football. For me, the interesting part is when both women and men are starting from the same place, there there isn't a huge difference in standards. so you note that the top, top men's team were, were ultimately beating the women's team. But when the women were put alongside um, men of a sim- similar cam- calibre, they were they were tossing most teams aside and they were beating them. So that, that to me, is, is really interesting because that's one of the biggest arguments against women's football around the world is that the standard isn't good enough. The reason the standard isn't good enough is because they've never been given the support. Um, right. Part of the reason you can't uh, put women's compare women's football stars to men's football stars uh, is because men had all the support. Yeah, you know, essentially like, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, and one one of the things in the United States that um, you, you were kind of touching on that uh, made the United States women so good. Uh, are you guys familiar with Title Nine? No, what is that? Okay, so Title IX is a law in the United States that says if you're a school uh, and you take federal money, which you know everybody here has to pay for uh, university um, with federal loans, if you take that federal money, uh, you have to offer women like, the same classes. So women get to be doctors, women get to be engineers, nurses, whatever they want to be, just like the men. But also, that means there's money for women's sports. Brilliant, yeah. Right. In equal measure, so for instance, like they would have to, they would have to do fifty percent American football for women and fifty percent American football for men, or would it be the American football for men and tennis for women? Well, basically, um, the, the law is a little bit complicated because you know not not necessarily as many women, especially in the seventies and eighties when they, they implemented this, not necessarily as many women wanted to play a team sport. So, for yeah. example, uh, if you've got if you've got a hundred guys that want to play American football, but you've only got twenty women um, that want to play soccer, uh, the women will get twenty percent because there's twenty of them rather than a hundred. Okay. So it, it, it's not equal funding, uh, but it basically says if if a hundred women want to show up and they, and they want to play soccer, well, they have to get the same money as the male the men's soccer team. But it's difficult because it starts with it starts at birth, really. I think that um, it sounds so so stereotypical, but it comes down to the boys wear blue and girls wear pink thing. And no wonder we're in a position where girls don't want to do team sports because they're told that it's not nice to be rough and it's not nice to be competitive. It's a nasty trait for you to go out and say, I want to win. I want to be the winner. And that's not a nice thing for girls to do. And so there are very Mm. few girls actually slip through the net and end up going, no, I actually really love team sports and I'm super competitive Mm. and I want to do that. It's a very Mm. rare trait. And no wonder, I don't know what it's like over there for for you guys on that side, but um, over here, Megan Rapinoe is slated. She's not slated Mm. because she's gay she's slate she's slated because she's got a voice and she's confident and she's competitive and she's really good that's why mm-hmm. she's slated so it's a really interesting thing about you saying back in the day women didn't want to do team sports yeah they didn't but they would completely that was that was how it was meant to be that was how society set it up that women wouldn't want to do team sports mm-hmm. well one of the interesting things uh over here in the states and Personally, I think it's why a lot of women in the States uh, took to soccer, um, especially after Title IX, um, in the 70s and 80s. Nobody played soccer over here. So, you know, if uh, you know girls were playing like basketball or, or baseball or whatever else, um, you know, get that uh, comment, oh, you're pretty good for a girl. Um, whereas with soccer, they never got that here because nobody knew what they were doing. 
you know, nobody was on the soccer pitches playing, so it was a way for women to just go out and play competitive team sports, and no one could criticize them because nobody here. I mean, when I was a kid in in the seventies and eighties, I don't. I think I saw one soccer match, and I didn't really understand what was going on. That is incredible. You know, so, so you 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 in your entire in the entire seventies, you probably saw one soccer game, and you didn't know the rules. Well, I, I was born in the seventies, so uh, I, the first time I remember seeing a soccer match was in the early to mid eighties. I had no idea what was going on. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you know when you're just like bred on on the idea that soccer is literally in every single person's life? Like mm. that. So to me, it's so fascinating. It's almost like otherworldly. <laughs> Yeah, in the, in the states, you know, you got people that follow the the NFL, baseball, or basketball, and you know, people are starting to follow soccer. But you know, it, for most of my life, football didn't exist here, which is part of part of why it was so hard for the U.S. women's team historically to get paid better because no one was watching. And then, ironically, the money became. You know, it became a fruitful amount of money when they decided to introduce the MLS as a professional league. Am I right? Is that would that be around the same same time? Uh, MLS started in the '90s, and there were several previous um, men's soccer leagues that all kind of fell apart. Um, which and which is why MLS has such a, a weird structure right now. Uh, but they because of they the way they sort of have a monopoly on all the teams. Uh, they just forced it through. So people are watching it, but I, I promise you, you know, if the U.S. women's national team are playing and they're on TV against an MLS team, more people are watching the U.S. women than the MLS match. So is it deemed as a women's sport? Would you say the majority, if you said to people, okay, what is American football? What gender sport is it? They'd say it's a men's sport. If you said what sport is, is soccer? Would they say it's a women's sport? Uh, you know, I, th I think 10 years ago, they would have said it, it was a women's sport. Uh, now it's getting a lot more popular for both men and women. Um, you know, so the English Premier League men's is actually really popular here in the States. Um, but I, like, I think people in the States now understand it's, it's for both. And do you think that the men, the introduction of sort of David Beckham and Miami and, and, and all that stuff, do you think that's helpful to the women's game, that they're right, raising the profile of the men's game? Um, you know, I wish, but I'm not really sure how to answer that because MLS and NWSL uh, aren't coordinated. They don't work together. Um, so, you know, in Portland, you've got uh, the Timbers and the Thorns, and they do work together. Those two teams are somehow affiliated. Uh, so that does help. Um, but say Chicago, you got the Chicago Fire for the men and the Chicago Red Stars for the women. Uh, they, they no longer play in the same stadium. Uh, they have no connection aside from uh, they both play soccer. And I, like, people here in the States, a lot of them don't realize that the best women's league in the world is right here in the States. And like all those people that they watch in the World Cup. Uh, from all sorts of different teams are playing here in the States. David Beckham being involved in MLS, I don't know that that helps the women's game. I think if somebody like Beckham, uh, say, had a, an NWSL expansion team, you know, somebody with that, that high profile, that would definitely help. I wondered whether just raising the profile of soccer full stop would help with raising the profile of the NWSL in some way, but I think... From, from my perspective, and and, and and feel free to shoot me down because I know very little about it. But um, it seems it seems like a silly move to not to not join the teams together. If I think to probably the most famous current um, English club, which would probably be Arsenal. Arsenal were uh, set up obviously under the under the men's club. You're wearing the same kit. In fact, the original sort of women's team or the sort of famous team, the Kelly Smiths and the Alex Scotts used to actually borrow Thierry Henry's jersey when they would go out to play. So mm -hmm. they would sort of swap kits back in the day. And it was very much one team, one, one area of London, and it represented both genders. And that really helped the women's game because 
they started doing things under one bracket. However, only really in the last couple of years, I'd say with the induction of Manchester City and their marketing team and everything that they've done, have they truly benefited from the power of the men's team? So they've conjoined their social medias. They've said like one club, one city. Um, they The women's, if you go to the stadium, because both ha I'm based in Manchester and Hannah goes to Manchester City to go and watch the women. Then on the side of the men's stadium, 60 foot tall is our is the Manchester City captain holding the trophies. The women and the men are put next to each other. So when they did their trophy parade last year, they shared a bus and they held their all of their trophies as if, you know, the Premier League was at the same level as the WSL trophy. And I think it's only helped. I don't think it's hindered at all. But when I put something online, I wrote a blog about it, um, about the NWSL not kind of joining more. A lot of, um, in fact, Chicago fans were the most prominent. A lot of Chicago fans kind of came at me. They were like, we don't want anything to do with the men's team, with the MLS men's team. Mm -hmm. We are the Chicago Red Sox. We don't want anything to do with that men's team. And I find that really interesting. Can you kind of shed more light on that? Uh, well, okay, so uh, with MLS, um, all the teams are owned by MLS. So you can come in and buy part of a team, but you can't by the whole team um, and like I said some of the men's teams support the women's team some don't Chicago um, the two teams it, it's sort of a love-hate relationship between the the Red Stars and the uh, the fire to an extent um, I'm not entirely sure why but part of it is uh, it, uh, the fire just moved out of the stadium uh, that they had purpose-built now the Red Stars are gonna be there alone it is way out of the city um, even though it's called Chicago. Um, so I, I think part of the bad blood is that the, the, the fire moved back into the city. Um, but also the, the fire doesn't have any support for uh, the Red Stars. You know, the, the, biggest thing, the biggest thing that they'll do in a given season is they'll have a, a doubleheader. Uh, and those could be big, but the fans are completely different. I mean, I went to one last summer, or last spring, their doubleheader. Uh, it was packed for the Reds for the uh, the fire they played first, and they figured, okay, between the two teams that are playing, I think it was Chicago and, and Portland, that's half the U.S. national team plus players from you know England and, and other other national teams. Uh, half the stadium left uh, before the Red Stars match started, um, and you know then all of a sudden, like, one of the things about NWSL matches that I love is you go to one. And you're surrounded by little girls who know every single player on the field, every stat. I mean, six to twelve-year-old girls who know more about any particular woman on the field than I do. It was, it's just great, and it's a whole different atmosphere. Like during the fire games, there's screaming and yelling at the ref. Uh, during end uh, of games, it's just you're surrounded by little kids who love watching these players play, and and there's no screaming at the refs. There's no you know bad behavior in the stands. It, it's great. So I think that the, the, such a different dynamic between the fans is part of why, and you know, the lack of any, any serious financial relationship between the two teams is why the Red Stars fans don't want to have anything to do with the fire. Is it ever possible to monetize women's football in the same way as we monetize men's football, considering the demographic that you've just described aren't, aren't as profitable as like grown men with jobs, like little girls you know, following the Chicago Red Stars. It's it's not, it's not you know, paving the way to a really fruitful business. Am I, am I being harsh? Uh, you know, I think if people would invest uh, in the, the women, like advertisement, the she I think the She Believes Cup didn't get on TV until two days before it started. So I think a big part of it is uh, marketing the women's game. It's just not done to the same extent that it is for the men's game. Yeah, totally. I think we saw the same as well with the the Olympic qualifiers. I remember seeing a lot online about they had the, the CONCACAF tournament and actually there was, until very, very shortly before the, the tournament was hosted, there was just no kind of outlet for people to, to engage with it and to watch it. Um and that's really frustrating when you look at the stats, for example, when ESPN took on the NWSL towards the end of last season as their streaming partner. I think viewing figures either went up, it was either it was between 50 and 70 percent. 
So it was a tremendous number, and it just kind kind of goes to show that if there is a place to to watch it and for fans to engage with it, people will will come. Um, I know Helen and I have talked on numerous occasions about merchandise and and actually if it's if you're able to buy merch from a a club whether that's a shirt or a scarf or or a hat people will will spend the money but it's just so hard to acquire um from so many mm-hmm. end clubs in comparison to, to a men's side oh yeah well i mean at, at the double header that i mentioned uh, last season uh so there's a proper booth to buy the the men's kit and all it's like the proper store yeah i'm sorry the red stars and are in a tent yeah. next to it yeah. which is yeah. just like wait yeah it's like it's this i i sorry to sound like a conspiracy theorist but it feels to me as somebody that works in marketing and finds this stuff really fascinating it seems to me that this is intentional we have an audience that want to buy these these kits and they're prominent. So if, if I give you an example, over here in England, I posted about the Portland Thorns shirt because it's quite a cool shirt. I'm, I personally follow the Portland Thorns. Um, they're one of my favorite teams. Tobin Heath is one oh, of my yeah. favorite players ever. So I, I've i been trying to source a, t- uh, a Thorns shirt in the UK. And the Thorns are actually one of the most the best marketed teams in the NWSL. Maybe in my humble opinion, but they're one of the most followed. They managed to get 25,000 to their stadiums on a regular basis. They've got a real sort of cult following now as a result of their, mm-hmm. their, their, um, their work. And the shirts, you can buy them from their website for something like ridiculous, like $140 or something. And then you can go on to um, a lot of the English websites, a lot of the sports websites, and you can buy sort of any... MLS club, you know, any sitting at the bottom of the table that have absolutely no followers all the way up to sort of the Atlantas, these, these, you can buy these shirts for sort of 20 to 30 pounds. So like 40, $50, it's, it's, it's intentional. Like this is not this, there is a market for these people. There is an audience. People are reaching out for it and publicizing on my Twitter and asking for companies to store it. They are actively choosing not to publicise women's football. Am I being? I don't know whether I'm just being overly dramatic about it, but here's a marketing opportunity. Do you want to be the only company in England selling NWSL shirts? Nobody wants to store them, and there is an audience over here asking for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I was trying to get a uh, U.S. women's team jersey uh, before last year's World Cup. Nike stopped making them in 2015. So there's four years where they're not... No, I'm not joking. It was impossible to find a U.S. Women's National Team jersey until they won it. For the and second what, time. And then what or happened four, when they fourth. won it? They became the top the top grossing uh, online shirt sale worldwide. More than Chelsea, more than Barcelona, more than PSG, more than any yeah, of these for any, Yeah, for any men's team ever. I mean... There has to be intention behind it for me. Hannah, do you think I'm crazy and I'm a conspiracy theorist? Um, yeah, but n- not with regards to this. <laughs> no, I, no, I agree completely. Um, and I'm always going to be biased because I am that fan that, that wants that shirt, that wants any kind of merch or and that just wants to engage with these clubs as much as possible because I, I can see the bigger picture. You know, if we all as fans engage a little bit more and spend a little bit more money then very slowly but surely these clubs will benefit from this investment and the leagues and, and the game will in turn grow um but it's it's just a, a, how do you as singular people kind of impact this on a massive level and i'm not being funny mate i don't think you should waste any more money on orlando pride <laughs> <laughs> I think the same. <laughs> I joke with her every day what? about the fact that she supports Orlando Pride. I can't help it. <laughs> well, they, they do have Alex Morgan, so. There you go. There you go. Say no more. So, do, do you guys have any, uh, just because I'm looking at the time here, uh, do you guys have any closing thoughts about equal pay in general uh, throughout the world? I think that there's two separate conversations almost when it comes to equal pay. I think that we've 
we've made the strides that we need to make at this point over in the UK um, and over in Europe in the top European leagues. Clubs like Lyon um, actually pay considerable salaries. They pay around for their top players over £100,000 a year, which is an incredible salary um, in Europe for, um, you know, it's like $150,000 for players like Lucy Bronze, Marajan, like some of their top players, Renard, um, they paid fabulous sums of money to play. Um, nothing close to, you know, the weekly salary of someone like Neymar, but they are play- paid a lot of money. Um, in, in in England, they're, they're paid well. Um, they're paid a decent amount of money, a livable amount of money, which means they don't have to have additional uh, jobs to get by as they did in the old days. So, uh, so we've come a long way in Europe, but that is a totally separate discussion because we are where we are in in that part of the world but on the other side of the pond over where you are in america um the u.s women's national team are severely severely underpaid for the, for what they provide to to worldwide women's football um not only in terms of uh their their the brand awareness that they create in america for football the, what, what they do for the face of football in america in terms of players like alex morgan megan rapino tobin heath as i've already mentioned uh, these players are poster children for um soccer in america so that aspect uh, alone shows their value in terms of um in terms of upping their salary i think it's 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 actually a disgrace uh, the way that they've been treated over the last um 10 or so years in terms of in terms of pay it's a matter of time uh, May 2020. We can only hope that th- it's good news and that that um, that the federation stands up and and apologises and hopefully back pays and hopefully um, does what is is massively overdue for the women's national team. But as I say, totally separate arguments, totally separate debates when it comes to equal pay across across world football. In my opinion. Yeah, I completely echo that. Um, I think we we take it for granted in Europe at times, actually. We're very quick. Well, some fans of the game are very quick to to judge the US women's national team for for standing up and fighting. And actually, they just are such outliers um, with their performance, especially when you compare it to to the men's team. Um, They, yeah, they deserve equal pay. I think there's very little more to say than that. yeah. Okay. Well, great. So, uh, just remind everybody uh, about your show and where folks can find it. Helen, take it away. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that to me. <laughs> um, so, our show is called It's Not Soccer, the NWSL podcast, hosted by two British girls. We do a monthly show and we often do a little mid-month show as well uh, and we are on apple spotify and basically anywhere that you get your podcasts also drop us a tweet at underscore it's not soccer great thank you guys so much thank you ever so much for having us thanks so much for having oh, us sure. on.